the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Good morning, Glory America. The interview today on the Hugh Hewitt Show is with Jonah Goldberg. He's the founder of The Dispatch. He was the founder of National Review's The Corner, the author of three great best-selling books, Liberal Fascism, The Tyranny of Clichés, and The Suicide of the West. L.A. Times columnist and, in his most recent G-File, a weekly newsletter, A Slow Kowtow to China, the owner of a great call to arms for people for candor about American uh, kowtowing to China. Good morning, Jonah. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Hugh? I'm great. Long time no talk. Now, Jonah, before I actually dive into your your, uh, G-file for this week, because the Wall Street Journal has an article out this morning on how it's the greatest summer job market for teenagers ever, I'm asking my guests, what was your first job, summer job as a teenager? Oh, gosh, my first summer job was as a foot messenger, um, where I would walk around New York City in the blistering heat delivering packages for a very small little publishing house. And uh, my, my most dramatic summer job was I was a mobile food vendor, and I worked a ice cream cart and an Italian ice cart at different times over the very summers. I still have my ID. Where, where did you have vendor. the ice cart? What year? No, where? Which part of New York? Were you in New York City? Oh yeah, yeah. I was in New York City. So true story. My the first place I worked for was a was a startup company that wanted to sell basically like yuppie bonbons called Love Bites, and they wanted me to wear a straw hat, have a tight T-shirt with a cupid on the heart, and tiny <laughs> tiny brown shorts, and work in the East Village. And I said, no thanks. No. I'm going to get a different job. And I went and because I didn't want to tell. Look, I have nothing. I'm not trying to be homophobic here. I just didn't want to tell men as a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old, hey, mister, you want a love bite? I mean, it just wasn't me. And so um, I switched and told uh, Larry's Italian Ice is in Midtown, like like 52nd and 6th, that kind of thing. Well, you know, I think I've I've seen the vendors for years. I go to New York a few times a year for NBC or some reason, and I, I've seen the vendors there for years, and I thought to myself, that's a hard job. That is hot, and it's full of surly people and crazy people right yeah but it's fantastic people watching i mean it's just like you want to get a real sense of just a slice of new york is spend eight hours on a street corner in new york just watching people and talking to the kind of people that want to talk to you it was it was a great experience well i I love being a city lifeguard in the uh in the early 70s and mid 70s at, at uh, pools that were open to everybody. And it was a wild experience in the clash of socioeconomic and divisions of that time coming together. But that it doesn't beat being a cart 
operator in New York. So you win the <laughs> you win the prize. Jonah, let's go to a slow kowtow to China. I thought this was very important. People need to read this. They have to understand what's going on. Why don't you give the summary, then I'll walk through some specifics about it. Sure. I mean, I, I, it covers the, the kind of kind of the waterfront. But the, the the top line thing, which I've been talking about for years, is that you know people want to talk about Jim Crow in America. There is no Jim Crow in America. Jim Crow is not primarily about voting. Jim Crow is about dehumanizing a whole class of people and and making them subject to a different set of laws. There is no Jim Crow in America. There is Jim Crow in China. It is a racist system that that believes in Han supremacy. If you are a minority ethnic group. Uh, you are denied access to the best schools. You are denied internal passports. Um, if you're the, if you're a Uyghur, you might be put in a concentration camp. If you're a Tibetan, you might be expropriated out of your land. Um, Jim Crow, apartheid, all of that stuff is alive and well. Even slavery is alive and well in China. And yet because of the way we teach our children and our elites in this culture, people would rather virtue signal by denouncing racism and Jim Crow in America or denouncing Georgia's, you know, tightening of voter laws, um, while at the same time, a lot of these elites, whether they're in Hollywood or they're in big tech or they're just in business in general, have no problem sucking up to and apologizing for a truly barbaric system in China. And the problem is, is that you can't, you can't say you're living up to the best ideals of America by condemning all this stuff at home and having utter disregard for what's going on in China. By all means, we should hold ourselves up to a higher standard. We do hold ourselves to a higher standard. China doesn't even agree with our standards. They have no problem with many of the things that we try to root out of our society because they are policy in China. And yet we have a, we have a, a, a systemic problem in this country of beating the living crap out of ourselves while giving the rest of the world a pass for what they do, and China is the best example of it. Now, uh, to the obvious objection that this is, quote, whataboutism, close quote, on steroids, I would argue, yes, and we've always done, and it is necessary to do whataboutism when it comes to the comparison of regimes and nation states. And you have a few areas where metrics might be measured. Free speech, democracy, police abuse, racism, reproductive freedom, corporate greed, colonialism, and corruption. And on all of those metrics, you write, quote, China is worse on all of them by a lot. And by a lot, we mean exponentially worse on all of them. And so it's not really whataboutism. It is a comparison of regimes for the purposes of elucidating the fact that there are evil regimes and there are good regimes, even if the good regimes are not perfect regimes. Is that fair? That's totally fair. Most of the things that we complain about, and, and, and I, I reject the whataboutism thing, because I said, by all means, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. But many of the things that are bugs in our system, vestigial racism, police abuse, they are features. They're policies in China. It's not like they're falling short of our standards, too. They have different standards. They think police abuse is fine. They think you know, Jim Crow is fine. It's, it's a complete apples to you know, widgets comparison. There's no comparison between the two the two societies, that we should be open and a little proud about that. Uh, a lot proud about that. In fact, there's an echo of the suicide of the West, Jonah's most recent book, and one I still continue to recommend to people, about why the West is exceptional and the United States exceptional among the Western countries. And I, I believe if you go and read that, you'll have a longer version of this and you'll be prepared for it. But why do we have this double standard? Why do we 
um, condemn ourselves or at least have elites condemning ourselves so vocally and so quiet about China? Jonah's answer, the first answer is, quote, obvious, money. Hollywood, the NBA, universities and big business are addicted to Chinese money and markets. So let's expand on that. It's not just them, Jonah. I like to always say the entertainment press, if we have complaints about media bias, it is the most applicable to the media, the entertainment industry press, because weekly stars go out on the road to promote their movies, almost weekly, and they never get a difficult question, not because they are dumb, they're not, but because the symbiosis between the entertainment press and celebrities is such that you cannot injure it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the 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 you know the old line is it's uh, not show friends, it's show business. Um, it applies to the media too. It is a business. The, the entertainment press is in a business, and many of the techniques that the that the Hollywood studios and the Hollywood stars use on the entertainment press to make sure they only get softball questions are the exact same techniques that China uses against the studios and the Hollywood stars. If you piss off the Chinese Communist Party, your not just your not just the specific movie or this specific actor, but the entire catalog from a studio can be blacklisted from the country for years. You can have you can have entire you know profit margins for for uh, for years wiped away by just offending the Chinese a little bit in one movie, they will blacklist your other movies too. If you if you are an entertainment reporter and you bring up the fact that you know some movie was shot within a hundred miles of a of a slave labor camp or of a reeducation camp, the studio will say you're not getting any more interviews with Brad Pitt or any of our other actors too. And so it is a it, it's a weird irony that the the sort of policy of censorship and and uh, bullying uh, rolls downhill from China through the studios to every level. And I have a grudging respect for the iron fist that China uses with this regard, because they are ruthless. They will nuke anybody, for example, a Houston Rockets executive, and I mean nuke them, destroy their business, destroy their career, cut their franchise off in order to message to everybody else. So if you can bring LeBron James into control, you can bring anybody in the United States into control, because he has the most powerful media presence active today. I believe that's a a fair statement that King James is King James when it comes to media, and he's now effectively silenced on China. Yeah, I mean, John Cena, I mean, maybe he knew Mandarin beforehand, but he gave his, you know, abject, um, sycophantic, throne-sniffing apology in Mandarin to apologize because he was so, he was, he was, he was such a wit dog uh, with fear that he would have his entire acting career destroyed if uh, if Fast and Furious 9, you know, which obviously the Chinese people desperately need, um, wasn't allowed to run in China. And it's, it's, I mean, you're right. I mean, you can respect power. It's sort of the same way that, you know, you know, no, no one here is like really pro-Hitler, but, you know, you can understand why Time Magazine would make him Man of the Year when he did, when it did, because just the role that he played. The role that China is playing is very assertive. It is worth keeping in mind that some of it is a sign of insecurity and weakness. Countries that are that unbelievably hypersensitive about having their 
reputations questioned and their authority questioned have reason to be afraid that their that their regime is more fragile than we think. Um, confident countries don't necessarily always act that way. A hundred percent agree. We're going to come back to that. But Jonah, I wanted to just close the loop on celebrities and China. I've discovered, because I've drawn, for whatever reason, uh, attacks on Twitter from such luminaries as Seth Rogen and David Simon. And I usually respond with a China question or comment or two, and the abuse will go on for a few more tweets, and then they go away. Because they really don't want that to become a controversy. They do not want this to be the subject. Seth Rogen turned aside one of my questions. My, my films don't show in China, which I don't believe to be true, but that's a great way to deflect from it. Ought American journalism to be pushing this story on behalf of the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, and in the future, Taiwan now, relentlessly with the celebrity culture and the business community that is profiting from China? Absolutely, particularly, and I, I hate to make this an Israel thing, but at, particularly at a moment where it's becoming incredibly fashionable for celebrities to talk about China's, I mean, about Israel's quote unquote apartheid and all these kinds of things while being utterly silent on China. You know, I grew up being taught that, you know, about the Holocaust, this must never happen again. We're literally watching them commit cultural genocide in China right now. They got a million Uyghurs in re-education camps. They're not liquidating them, but it's it's it should certainly ping our collective memory. And anybody who says never again, or anybody who wants to condemn Israel for its self-defense um, while apologizing for China, should be called out on it. That's how you change minds. And the reason I'm eager to get this conversation going, I talked to Congressman Gallagher last hour. The central foreign policy question of our time is: What will the United States do when the CCP acts via force? explicitly or quietly against Taiwan? Will we respond with force? And we will be obliged to do so instantly. Because they, if they move like Russia did against Crimea and Ukraine after the Olympics, they will do so quickly. And so we'll have to decide, if we don't talk about it before then, we won't have a decision in the public mind made up. Do you think, Jonah, that this administration would come to the forcible defense of Taiwan if it was attacked by China? I honestly don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think, and I, I would, and I would have that position basically the last three administrations. I, I think the only way you prevent China from taking over Taiwan is by preventing it from, you know, them even thinking about doing it. The second Xi thinks he can get away with doing it, he'll do it. So that means you have to raise the cost of it now by saying, by moving, you know, the Sixth Fleet in there, doing whatever we have to do, creating a treaty, recognizing Taiwan. It, I, I don't know exactly what it would be, but I think that, you know, the China scholars I talk to, Xi has a very simplistic cost-benefit analysis. If it will work, he will do it. And yeah, that's so the old correlation. Do- that's correlation of forces, Leninist theory, that goes back 100 years, and it's operating in China right now. What's the correlation of forces? We've never been more vulnerable to this as a world because I don't think the United States has ever been this weak in its uh, telegraphed response or China this ambitious in its obvious prowess. I, I think that's exactly right. China is a lot like uh, Germany at the beginning, the end of the 19th, earliest, early 20th century. It really feels like it's its moment in the sun. It deserves to be recognized as at least the regional hegemon. And it's more afraid of its own. It, it, it's as, almost as afraid of its own people as its people are of the Communist Party. And that requires doing something along the lines of what Putin is doing, is convincing the populace that they're in a constant state 
of, of war or near war with the outside world. They have outside enemies always trying to undermine them. And, um, and that the, the world is disrespecting China and not giving it its due. And that is a tinderbox way to, to, to manage a country of over, what, 1.3 billion people. And we, what you need to do is you need to be proactive and just make it clear that taking Taiwan back is not an option. If you make them think that it's a possibility, then they're going to seize on it. And I don't want to get into a nuclear war with China. So, you know, better to be, you know, preventative now than, say, after China makes its move, trying to convince the American people that we want to have a war with China in its back door, in its backyard. I just don't think it's. So, Jonah, if the, if the Jonah Batcave phone rings and it's Joe Biden, he's called you up because he's read the G-File for years, and a Chinese fleet is moving <laughs> towards Taiwan or there are Chinese paratroopers being dropped in to Taiwan, and he asks you, should I shoot from a Virginia-class submarine or should I uh, dispatch F-22s from Japan to shoot down the Chinese air transports, what would you advise me to do? Yeah, the paratroopers is different than the, the, the ships, right? If the ships are encircling, you move the sixth fleet and have a Cuban Missile Crisis kind of standoff. If they're actually dropping soldiers in, then I, I, China has committed. And, and my God, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I, I think you, you, send the, you start shooting. I mean, I, I think we I want agree. our commitment to Taiwan. I think the dominoes are so obvious that you have to do that. Now, let me ask you to go back to the people who are silent in the face of atrocity and yet loud in the face of American imperfection. I believe they, they act this way because not only of money, but where they live and with whom they associate. People don't like conflict. They like their friends to like them. They do not want to be the outlier. And in Silicon Valley, Hollywood and the creative world, to be anti-American is almost a requirement. But to be anti-Chinese is simply or anti the CCP, they're not anti-Chinese, they're anti the Chinese Communist Party, is not de rigor. It's not required. Is that a fair assessment of why this happens? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's definitely a major part of it, for sure. I mean, I think this is somewhat of an overdetermined phenomenon. There's also just the bizarre identity politics kind of aspect to it, where China is a nation of color, and therefore, you know, it, no one has a problem talking about the British variant of COVID, but you say the Chinese variant of COVID, and all of a sudden you're a racist. There's there's some of this that there is just this kind of noblesse oblige condescension that comes from a big slice of white elite America that just has to work from the assumption that we're the bad guys. You know, that what, what's the famous line from Emerson? A liberal is someone who won't even take his own side in an argument. There's a certain amount of that going on, too. So this brings us to the ultimate issue about whether or not they actually care about human liberty outside of their own liberty. And you have what you call the Whiggish view of China. Would you explain that to the Steelers fans, that it will eventually be free? I am quite the pessimist on this, but would you explain, because of totalitarian advances over those of the Soviet Union, but what, what is the Whiggish theory that you're attributing to the... Yeah, uh, Whig, you know, the Whiggish historians were historians who were a little... Uh, too confident and rosy and thought all of history was leading towards freedom. And they kind of cherry-picked the past, and they said, see, it always just leads to basically English-style liberty, and it's inevitable. Um, I'm, I am not quite there. I don't believe in, like, determinism or anything like that. But um, the history of freedom is very often is that there's basically what they call, like, a Kuznets curve or whatever. Once you get past a certain amount of 
uh, wealth in a middle class, and you don't have a country like Saudi Arabia where the wealth comes from resources. It actually comes from the middle class. The middle class eventually starts demanding its rights and demanding representation. And that's how you got democratic revolutions in, in Europe, in England, in France, in America, was basically these were middle class revolutions. And um, I still think it's very possible that China's totalitarian for the rest of our lives. Um, and maybe even our kids' lives. But in the long run, I think freedom makes its best case for itself. Edmund Burke said, example is the school of mankind, and he will learn at no other. People generally want to live in a society where they can, they can follow their conscience, their kids have choices to pursue happiness. And, um, and I think that the demonstration effect of the West and of, of democracy is still the best argument for democracy. It's one thing when you've been an incredibly poor country like China was for so long, as long as you're delivering economic results, people are willing to suspend those desires. But once you actually have a firmly entrenched large middle class, um, I, I still tend to believe that that will militate towards freedom. That's been the trend around the world. And once you actually get a country that has a democratic revolution, it is very rare. It's not. It, it happens, obviously, but it's rare that it goes back. Now, Jonah, uh, you and, and I are both of the age. Uh, I'm older than you, but we are both marked by the Gene Kirkpatrick theory of history, which is there's a difference between authoritarian and totalitarian regimes. I believe that's why America made the fundamental error about China. We judge it to be authoritarian and not totalitarian. The difference between the school of history is technology and the ability to have a surveillance society that makes the Stasi in East Germany look like children uh, when it comes to the control of mass populations. It makes Orwell seem unimaginative. Does that not represent a break? Yeah, look, I, it's, I, I agree. It's a, it's a major new innovation. And, you know, I have, we have libertarian friends who always like to say technology is, is on the side of freedom. No, it's not. Technology is often on the side of totalitarianism or authoritarianism. And then it flips. It depends on the historical context. That said, uh, you know, China, there's a reason why China is rushing to develop these technologies to control its own people. It's because they're afraid of their own people. And they think it's necessary to do this. And the, the bargain, the, the gamble that China made is that totalitarian regimes normally do not allow for innovation. They do not allow for various segments of the society become prosperous because then they become difficult to control. Nor that's, that's why North Korea has stayed the way it has basically remained Sparta for three generations. And China took a gamble on actually making a lot of its own people rich. And that makes it difficult to control your own people. And so I think the, the Chinese are in a race to stay one step ahead of their own people. And they may succeed at doing it for a while. But I, you know, I have, I have faith in free, at the end of the day, freedom will win out. And it's, it's, it doesn't mean you don't fight for it because the only way freedom ever works is if you fight for it. But um, I, I, I can be very pessimistic with you for the next 10, 20 years. That may be, given the stakes, that may be a long enough time horizon. But my point about talking about one day China being free is that, and that, let's just say for the sake of argument, I am right, and that China is basically a giant Switzerland or Canada, uh, you know, in, in, 40 years, They're, those people are going to look back on the way America behaved 
towards the evil regime that was oppressing their parents and their grandparents, and they're going to have contempt for us. You know, if we had allied with Nazi Germany, imagine what, and then Nazi Germany is still at the end of the day loses and becomes a democracy. Imagine how people would look at Germany and America for having sort of sold out to Hitler. Well, there are, there are Walter Durantes on every corner, and many of them wear jerseys, and all of them in the movie business are involved, but I don't know that they will be condemned. My last question, Jeremy, we've got two minutes. The acquiescence of Americans to what is going on in the CCP's uh, areas of control, is that obviously morally bankrupt? I don't, I don't want to say it's morally bankrupt. The American people have had a rough 20 years with a couple wars, with a financial crisis, and they feel like we've got a lot of problems at home. I think that they're just tuning, a lot of the American people are tuning it out. No, I'm talking about uh, the celebrities. I'm talking about the Clooney's okay, well, and the LeBron's. Morally bankrupt. You cannot, you cannot go around preening and virtue signaling about how your, 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 your real passions are these principles about democracy and free speech, and then take um, a check for millions of dollars from China. That just makes you a whore. I mean, I just don't, I don't have, I have no other way of explaining it than that. Either shut up about how much you care about democracy or stop taking the money. Those are your two choices. It also makes you a coward. That, that's what it, it really Absolutely. does make you a coward. Jonah, always good to talk to you. Go read the G file to get the full, a slow kowtow to China. Great to talk to you again, Jonah. Have a great beginning to your summer. Great to be here. Thanks, Hugh. You too. Hey, thank you. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.